0: Chapter 26 of the Return of Clubfoot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of Clubfoot by Valentine Williams. Chapter 26 In Which a Black Box Plays a Decisive Part. A smear of smoke on the horizon was all that was left to denote the presence of the Naomi. When John Bard came to me as I sat in the shade of the afterdeck of the Cristobal, going through the mail he had brought me from Rodriguez, he dropped into a chair at my side. "'Captain Lawless and that Scots engineer of his,' he said, "'spent the greater part of the night ashore grubbing for gold round the image. But they didn't find as much as a dollar. And then to discover they had lost their launch. Gee, they were as sick as mud.' "'Bah!' I answered. I'm fed up with the whole place. The sooner we're at the sea again, the better I shall be pleased. I want to get back to work, John." "'We're sailing at four o'clock,' my friend replied. "'But before we up-anchor, Desmond old man, I should like to have a look at that burial chamber and the passage by which you escaped. What do you say to taking me ashore now and showing me round?' "'Anything to pass the time,' I said wearily. "'When do we start?' right now. And I'll bring a pick and spade. If there's time, we might have another grub for gold in the lava round the idol. You can bet that Kenny Scott hasn't left an inch of soil unturned," I laughed as old John went off. Half an hour later we were pushing our way across the rocky valley at the end of which, against the mountainside, the great idol was set. We skirted the smoking volcano and at length stood before the narrow fissure half hidden by a gigantic boulder through which I had emerged from the burial-chamber. We had borrowed a couple of lanterns from the ship, and Bard carried a pickaxe while I shouldered a spade. We left our tools at the entrance and lit our lamps. Then I led the way into the passage. At the end I found the solid masonry of the table hanging down into the passage. A steady heave swung it round, and there, above our heads, was the black square opening of the death chamber. And now I struck. The place had two poignant memories for me. I hoisted Bard up into the hole, but I declined to accompany him. Swinging my lamp in my hand, I wandered back along the passage towards the cleft by which we had entered. I had gone perhaps a hundred yards from the cave when the light of my lantern, striking low, revealed a square flag set in the floor of the passage. It sounded hollow to the foot. Setting down my lamp, I stooped to examine it, and then I saw that the stone was roughly carved. The carving was worn and filled in with dust. I scraped it clear as best I could with my hands and then saw that the stone was carved in the likeness of a turtle, the counterpart of the turtle carved on the table in the cave. I could see the head and tail and the four flippers roughly hewn. "'John!' I shouted. "'Here, John!' My voice reverberated weirdly in the low-roofed passage. I dropped to my knees and tried to heave the stone up, but it was firmly set and resisted all my efforts. Then I heard Bard's footsteps echoing along the passage. "'Will you look at that?' I said as he came up. "'By George!' he exclaimed. "'Captain Roberts! His mark! Can you heave it up? Wait, I'll get the tools.' and he darted off along the passage. With the aid of the pick we prized the stone up. A slot had obviously been cut for it in the rock. A shallow opening was revealed and at the bottom stood a black box. It was of black leather, discoloured but apparently in good condition, the corners bound with some dull metal which I took to be brass. It was about four feet long, with a rounded lid studded with nails. Bard lifted up one of the lanterns, whilst I, lying on my face, dropped an arm into the hole. My fingers closed on a handle at the side of the box. I heaved. The box was immensely heavy, and I found that I could barely lift it. I managed, however, to push it to one side, thus making room for my feet. Then I dropped into the hole, upended the casket, and by dint of our combined exertions we landed it on the floor of the passage. I looked at Bard and he looked at me. "'You, open it!' I said hoarsely. The box seemed to be of Spanish manufacture, for the leather was handsomely tooled in the Cardova fashion. It was fitted with an elaborately chased iron or steel lock, with a hasp that rattled to Bard's touch. Without further ceremony he inserted the point of the pick under the hasp, wrenched and the nails giving way in the rotten leather, the whole lock came off. Then he threw up the lid and we saw a layer of discoloured brown canvas. This I pulled aside and we fell back in amazement. For the box was filled to the brim with magnificent gold and silver vessels, interspersed with them richly chased pistols and a couple of daggers with hilts studded with gems. There were, among other things, a superbly wrought ewer and basin, both of which seemed to be of solid gold, a flat gold dish set with diamonds and rubies. A gem-laden crucifix, the Christ in pure gold, and an enormous variety of gold and silver forks and spoons. We laid all these treasures out on the floor of the passage, and then, beneath some folded lengths of rich crimson brocade, came upon a long ebony box, in which, wrapped loosely in a cambric scarf yellowed with age, was a superb collection of gems. There were no less than three magnificent parures of pearls, such as great ladies in the days of the merry monarch wore upon their neck and bosom, a number of diamond and pearl drops such as were worn on the forehead, diamond earrings, a huge emerald set as a brooch, several heavy gold chains, and some diamond buckles. Beside the ebony box, enveloped in a flowered silk wrap, was a curiously fashioned silver globe richly set with different precious stones, to represent the various capitals of the world. Bard heaved a deep sigh and looked at me. "'My word, old boy,' he exclaimed, "'you've done it at last!' "'What—what do you suppose it's worth?' I asked, rather unsteadily. "'A hundred thousand, two hundred thousand pounds,' answered Bard, "'who can say? The antiquarian value, altogether apart from the intrinsic, of some of these things—that crucifix and that globe, for example, must be very considerable.' that emerald and those brilliants, for instance. But you aren't listening." I wasn't. A sudden vision had come to me of clear gray eyes trustfully raised to mine, of a tangle of copper-colored hair that rested against my coat, of a slim warm body that clung confidingly to me. The discolored leather trunk which lay at our feet was destined to change the whole course of my life. Hope to which, with Marjorie, I had said good-bye, came surging back into my heart. Our island dream was not at an end, unless good fortune had come to me too late. "'When will the Naomi reach Panama?' I suddenly asked. "'In about a week or ten days,' John replied. "'Why?' "'Because,' I said, "'I must reach her by cable.'" It was ultimately from Rodriguez that my message was sent. Akawa, Barr's Japanese butler, took it down the hill to the cable office. I was prostrate with a bad bout of malaria which I must have contracted in the steamy woods of Cock Island. My cable was to Marjorie, and this is what it said. "'The barriers are down. When will you marry me? Desmond.' But no reply came. All through the feverish days of my illness a shadowy cable addressed to me flitted through my tortured mind. Sometimes, when I was light-headed, as Bard told me afterwards, I would fancy that Marjorie had replied, that Akawa was handing me the message, but when consciousness returned I awoke to a dark world which even the leather trunk locked away in Bard's strong-room could not illumine. It was weeks before I could travel to New York, where I placed the treasure in the hands of a firm of antiquaries they advise me that it should only come on the market gradually, piece by piece, in order not to depreciate its value. I do not, therefore, know even now exactly how much it will realize. But from what they tell me, I am quite justified in regarding myself as a comparatively wealthy man. Bard will not touch a cent of the treasure. He does not need it, he says, and it belongs to me." A cable from the chief, to whom I had communicated my New York address awaited me on my arrival from Panama. It directed me to go to Washington for instructions. The treasure disposed of, I accordingly boarded the train and proceeded to the capital. From my hotel at Washington I telephoned to my old friend, Vincent Pargett, at the Embassy, and invited myself to dinner. Vincent made me welcome in his very comfortable bachelor apartment and over the cocktails produced a batch of cables. "'You'd better read this one first, Desmond,' he said. "'It came only this morning. The rest have been here a week.' And he tossed over the envelope. It was from Marjorie. My heart seemed to stop beating as my eyes fell on her name printed at the foot of the message. It was from London, and I realized that my cable must have missed her at Panama and followed her home. This was her reply. Whenever you like, your Marjorie. There are moments which justify even the Secret Service agent in abandoning his wonted habit of reticence. With Marjorie's dear message in my hand, I told old Vincent, whom I had known all my life, the news which it contained. Three cheers! exclaimed my friend, then raised his glass. I drink, said he, with mock solemnity. To the passing of England's premier sleuth. I wonder, shall I, in the stay at home government billet which the chief procured for me, and happy in the possession of Marjorie as my wife, always be able to resist the beckoning finger of romance luring towards high adventure and spirited endeavor? Shall I, to the end of the chapter, remain deaf to the call of the blood, aloof from the thrill of the man hunt? who knows? Of Clubfoot I never heard again, and to this day I do not know whether, weak as he was and single-handed in that little launch, he ever made the land. Garth, inclined to be difficult at first, resigned himself at the last with a good grace to our matrimonial projects. I think the argument that my share of Captain Roberts' treasure would remain in the family made a distinct appeal to his Lancashire horse sense. Carstairs is with us still and is developing into an excellent butler. For the vice-consul at Rodriguez, whose friendly services I had not forgotten, the chief procured the C.B.E. I am told that he wears it very impressively, dangling from its purple ribbon on his shirt-front, when, in evening dress, according to the protocol, he attends the President of Rodriguez at the opening of the legislature. End of chapter 26 The End of The Return of Clubfoot by Valentine Williams